You're listening to Florida Capital Conversations, a podcast series brought to you by Holland and Knight's Tallahassee office. Each episode of this series will take a look at the many different aspects of state and local government through the lens of our experienced legal professionals. Our hosts, Nate Adams and Mia McCown, have a wide range of Florida governmental experience and offer a seat at the table to everyone who listens to these candid conversations. Welcome to our Florida Capital Conversations podcast series. Today, our subject is appellate writing, and our guests are Tiffany Roddenberry and Tara Price. My name is Nathan Adams. My co-host is Mia McCowan. We are so pleased that you have joined us today to consider another important issue associated with state government affecting the business community and our daily lives as Floridians, in this case, dealing with the judicial system. There's none better to discuss appellate writing than our two guests today, Tiffany and Tara. To kick off our discussion, Tiffany and Tara, I know that you have had a background uh, with the major courts in the Northern District of Florida and the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal. Both of you clerked uh, with the United States District Court here in the Northern District of Florida and with the 11th Circuit. Tell us a little bit about that experience and how that plays into your appellate practice. Sure. So serving as a, a law clerk, and it, it doesn't matter what level court it is. So Tara and I clerked for federal courts, um, but all of the district courts of appeal and the state Supreme Court also have what are essentially called elbow law clerks. And that means you are working directly with the judge um, and at the district court or trial court level, you're helping them um, you know, research issues and write decisions. And you're also helping with things like jury trials. At the appellate level, which um, Tara and I clerked at the 11th Circuit, at that level, you are really just working with a particular judge to decide appeal. So a, a matter has already been decided by a trial court and it's gone up to the next level. And so you work directly with a judge in researching issues and also helping craft a decision um, that will resolve the appeal. And I believe both of my clerkships really informed how I viewed legal writing. The two judges I worked before had very different writing styles, but both you know, really informed what I know judges are looking for in good appellate briefs. Those experiences have really shaped you know, who I am as a writer, as well as you know, how I advise other attorneys how to prepare briefs. Tara, what about you? Well, thanks, Nate and Mia. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Um, and Tiffany hit the nail right on the head. I mean, part of the joy of being able to clerk with a judge is being able to develop a relationship with that person who you can see as a mentor, and they can help walk you through some best practices uh, and some things to avoid. And you really get to see from a neutral perspective, a lot of various types of litigation or appeals play out. And it's fascinating to be able to do that, particularly as you begin your career. You don't have any bad habits you need to break or, or anything. And so you can kind of look at everything fresh. And uh, it, it was just a fantastic opportunity where you could watch a trial or a hearing and then afterwards ask the judge, you know, why did you sustain that objection? Or why, you know, why did they make that motion and similarly with appeals, you could watch oral arguments, you could read briefs, and you could kind of see how the judges would react to either various arguments or the way that, that people wrote, and which in some cases can actually work against you. So uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to be able to go behind the scenes. 
What a great way to start a career. And now what, we're a few years in the rearview mirror. Both of you are partners at Holland and Knight, and you've, you've begun this appellate practice. So I wonder, you know, suppose I have uh, prevailed at a circuit court level and, you know, I'm trying to decide what to do next. Can you give us an overview of what that appellate process looks like and the decisions that would be relevant for me to, to, to think about? So generally under the Florida's rules of appellate procedure, you have 30 days to appeal a decision. Um, and at that point, you initially just have to file a notice of appeal. Um, and then the deadlines for briefs follow from that. Um, and so typically, you're, if, if it's a circuit court decision, um, you're going to be heard by the relevant district court of appeal, which there are five in Florida. Um, and you take that up. It, it, it's just a matter up to, up to the individual party as to whether or not you want to appeal. You definitely have to take to consider who the judges are on the district courts of appeal as to what, you know, what you think they'll be sympathetic to your issue. Do you think you have a good chance of prevailing because appeals can be expensive. So there's a lot of practical considerations that you should keep in mind before initiating an appeal. But typically you file a notice of appeal, you have a deadline by which you file an initial brief. So the party challenging the trial court's decision gets the first chance of outlining their issues um, for the appellate court to decide. And we can kind of talk about, you know, what what you might want to put in your 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 initial brief. And then the party that won below gets a chance to respond in an answer brief within a set period of time. Um, and then after that, the party challenging the trial court decision, the appellant gets a chance of, in a reply brief to kind of, you know, point out any anything else they want to. Um, it, it usually just proceeds just like that. The, the Typically, the circuit court um, clerk's office will prepare the record, which is what the judges will rely on in the appeal to decide an issue. And there's not a lot of motion practice or anything like that that happens before. So it's um, a pretty orderly process, and it's usually considerations as to whether you want to go through that process and try to reverse the decision below. I just want to build off of something Tiffany mentioned about how there isn't a lot of motion practice and the clerks will build the record. If you're a heavy litigator, you, you might not realize that once you're on appeal, there are some exceptions to this, but for the most part, you don't get a new opportunity to put new things before the judge. This may or may not be a clean slate look at everything. There's no ability to do additional discovery or try to get new matters into the record. For the most part, again, with some exceptions, what the trial judge or what the jury had in front of them, that's going to be what's in front of the appellate court. And so this isn't an opportunity to kind of have like a second bite of the apple to redo any sort of fact-finding things in the record. If that's what you're trying to do, that is not what an appeal is. So that's an important consideration. When you talk about you're not able to build facts or add additional information, we talk about needing an appellate lawyer and you guys come in and help us, you know, tee that up. But is there any value to having an appellate attorney assist maybe with some of the trial proceedings? Is that beneficial at all? Yeah, definitely. I, th I think appellate attorneys can add something at the trial level um, just to ensure you are uh, preserving every issue that you might want to appeal. Preservation is a huge issue, and a lot of appeals are kicked out for the simple reason that the party below just didn't do the job they were supposed to to ensure that that issue was preserved and could be taken to the appellate court for review. 
Yeah. And so that looks like having someone who is appellate minded, you know, sit with the trial attorneys uh, and, you know, as the trial is progressing, you know, looking for those opportunities, make sure you object to this, make sure you ask for this, make sure you talk to the judge about this, because if you don't take those opportunities to register in the record where it's in the transcript, where there's, there's some sort of documented record of you making that objection, a lot of times the entire argument's waived and there's no way for you to argue later on that the trial court got it wrong. Unless it's some, again, there's some exceptions, but they usually involve very, very serious and dramatic error. And, and that's not most of the time what's going to be going up on appeal. Well, that's helpful to know. And I know actually I've had experience with both of y'all helping me in my trials kind of pinpoint those issues, making sure we get certain testimony, um, that there are sites to the record that we can then pinpoint out and to make sure that it's there. And so I've had it in, in real time um, with, with the two of you both helping me in my cases. One thing that I also have learned from just even the limited appellate practice that I've had before one of the district courts of appeal, it seems like you walk in and there's just a whole tone and people act differently in appellate courts than they do in in trial courts. Have you do you find that there's a different tone in the way people present themselves, even how they write some of their their motions or write their briefs? For example, that the tone may be different in appellate briefs than say what I might file in a motion for summary judgment in the trial court level? Definitely. Mia, I think that the tone is entirely different. I mean, I would say, and maybe you would agree or disagree, but I feel like state trial court in Florida and probably most states is kind of the wild, wild west. I mean, there's there are rules, but they are not, you know, aggressively enforced, not the way that they are in the appellate courts. I mean, the appellate the the Florida rules of appellate procedure are very detailed. They prescribe the exact sections you should include in a brief. They tell you the exact fonts to use, the exact size. And, you know, a district court of appeal clerk will kick your brief out within a matter of days if you use Times New Roman font instead of Bookman Old Style or Arial. The practice is a little bit elevated just because it is much more structured and there are rigorous rules in place for what um, appellate briefs should include, among other things. And there's almost this unspoken way of practice in the sense of you don't really want to be the person who's banging on the table and getting exasperated in an appeal. It makes it look as though your argument isn't as strong as it as it probably is. So through your writing and if you have an oral argument before an appellate court, you really want to present yourself in a very measured way and you want to keep it to the record. You want to keep it to the facts. If the other side says something that is a misstatement, you know, make sure you state it like it's a misstatement and you don't need to spend time saying that someone is, you know, trying to pull one over on the court or something like that. It's just too much. It's unnecessary. And it starts to reflect back on your own credibility. And one of the things you never want to lose with an appellate court, really with any court, but you never want to lose your credibility. That's the one thing you have. So if I'm a practitioner and you are going to give me some advice about what I ought to keep in mind in connection with, you know, the appeal going up, what comes to mind? What are the foremost tips that you would provide a practitioner? So I think one of the most important things, and and we can get away from this and forget about this, but 
it's very important up front to tell the court exactly what you want them to do and to ask for that. It's something that we're trained to do at the end, right? We start the story with the introduction and then we have our middle points and then we have our conclusion. In legal writing, it's very, very helpful to almost do the inverse of that. Have the conclusions at the front so that when people are going through your writing, they know exactly where you're going and exactly what you want. They don't have to wait until the end of a 50 or 60 page brief to figure out what it is you want them to do for you. I, I would also say, um, kind of talking a little bit about the tone, it, that remember your audience, as Tara said, the audience here is a, a panel of three district court of appeal judges, typically, or the Florida Supreme Court or another appellate court, however it is, but that's different than a jury. So never forget who your audience is. And you know, even though these are you know very smart judges that are considering your case, don't assume that they know um, what you know about a case. I mean, we get we get so caught up in cases that we know it you know frontwards and backwards that we kind of sometimes we draft things that we think is really built for someone who could anybody could pick it up and start reading it, but that's not always the case. Um, so keep in mind that. The judges are very smart, but you do have to, to educate them about your case, and you can't assume that they know things without you telling them. So make it easy to read and clear, kind of keep that 50,000-foot perspective, um, and don't bog it down with you know big words and long clauses. I mean, I, I clerked for a judge who, who has probably some of the, the shortest sentences ever in orders, and I just I love them because they're very short to the point concise and easy to read. So that's something that I would keep in mind in, in writing all briefs. I think another another good thing to focus on is really think about if you, your client were to win, what does that mean policy-wise, right? Like the court is looking not just at this particular case, but they're looking at the rule of law that it sets and what that means for future cases or other cases. Are you asking the court to dramatically expand the law? Is this a very narrow judicial interpretation that isn't going to have that much impact beyond your case? Those types of things weigh on the judges. And you may even hear them asking questions. A lot of times hypotheticals are for the purpose of really exploring what kind of policy the court is establishing, whether they rule in your favor or whether they rule in your opposing counsel's client's favor. And so trying to really think through that and if you can work it into your brief to explain what that policy is and why it makes sense and why it fits in with the patchwork of laws that we already have, I think would go a long way to help. Tara, on those policy issues, I know the appellate courts, obviously, that's something that's, as you mentioned, is on their radar and they're thinking about. But in order to preserve the record, do you need to have those policy arguments made at the trial court level, too? Or is that something the appellate court can address whether or not it was mentioned at the trial court level? I think for the most part, as long as you make your objections and preserve the arguments that you want to make. I don't know that you need to argue every single reason why something you want is the right thing to do. You do want to put any particular legal argument in front of the trial court because you don't want to be in a position where you're asking the appellate court to rule on another legal basis that the trial court didn't really didn't really think of. But all that said, policy consideration is is kind of like another justification for why you ruling for your client is a good thing to do. It's not necessarily a legal basis or a foundation upon which to rule. It's just another, and by the way, this is the right thing. So it kind of kind of helps round out your argument, but I don't know that in and of itself independently it would be grounds 
for your client to win. I was going to bring up too that uh, a place for those kinds of policy arguments, um, a good place might be amicus curiae briefs, which are called friend of the court briefs. And they're typically offered by third parties to an appeal that, you know, they're not parties to the appeal. They don't have a dog in a specific fight before the appellate court, but they're usually the ones that will raise broader policy implications from what the what the court is considering. Um, and, and I think that's a pretty significant practice before both Florida's District Courts of Appeal and the Florida Supreme Court. So there are definitely um, groups that are looking for those opportunities to weigh in on issues. And typically, I mean, even parties can kind of solicit that help to maybe use the amicus brief as an opportunity to really flesh out a policy issue that's of concern. And just an FYI on those, those briefs are typically, um, they have to be preceded by a motion for leave to file that type of brief and the court, the applicable appellate court has to grant it. Um, and then those briefs usually are filed. The standard is 10 days after the brief they're, they're supporting. So, um, that's another place that parties might consider for um, for raising those types of larger, broader policy implications that a decision might have, uh, particularly on an industry at large. That's interesting. All right, guys. Well, this has been a very uh, hell of a discussion on appellate writing. Uh, I want to thank Tiffany and Tara for their time, for their information and comments. Uh, and I want to thank my co-host, Mia McCallum. Mia, thank you for uh, joining us again today. Thank you for having me. And Tiffany and Tara, thank you too. I learned a lot that bottom line, I think if, if I'm doing an appeal, I need I need to call an appellate lawyer and have them handle it to make sure the tone is right. And I mean, Lord, I, I probably wouldn't even get the font right for the appeal. So you definitely need to make sure um, you get an expert in that field. And I appreciate you guys sharing some of your advice with us. Yeah, if nothing else, please take away from this conversation that if your brief does not have Bookman old style font or Arial font, you're probably going to be kicked out. So. <laughs> it might get rejected. Unfortunately, it, it will get rejected. Don't sneak in a bunch of like single space stuff in the footnotes. <laughs> yeah, you got to use the same font, same font size. Clearly, appellate courts really care about font and font size, so you should do. <laughs> And I, and I think also your comment about amicus briefs is important because that's an opportunity, uh, you know, for a non-party to a case to weigh in on a case and something that they care about. That's a practice that you all participate in besides just actual appellate brief writing. Is that right? Yes. All right. Well, that's helpful. Well, uh, most of all, I want to thank the audience for joining us today. And we hope that you'll plan to join us for our next Florida Capital Conversations podcast. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Florida Capital Conversations. For more information on our Tallahassee office, please visit hklaw.com slash Tallahassee.